Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Our Father, we turn to you because you are the God of all the earth. We've sung that today and we've considered many things. Uh, But Lord, now we ask that you would turn our attention to Jesus through your word, that we would see uh, what sort of God you are. Lord, and I ask that this wouldn't just be like a service that we're attending this morning or some interesting talk that we might want to hear, but Lord, this would be you speaking. And so I ask for grace, that you would fill me with grace, uh, your spirit, the movement of your spirit, Lord, for clarity. Lord, I need clarity this morning. But Lord, we also believe that you are the one that opens the heart. And so we ask that you would open all of our hearts to hear you. Lord, we know that your word is living and active. Lord, able to pierce right into the, between the bone and marrow, the very essence of who we are today. And so, Lord, change us through your word. Don't let us leave here without actually being impacted by you through this living and active word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it's my great honour to be here after four years uh, as a new or somewhat new church, I can say now after four years. And one of the reasons that we planted this church was quite simply because of God's heart for the sinners of the world. God's heart for the sinners of Adelaide. God's heart for the sinners of the south of our city. God's heart for sinners in Marion. God's heart for sinners in this room. God's heart for sinners like you and me. That's why we planted this church four years ago. Because God loves the people of this city. Because he loves the people who don't know him in this city. And God knows what we're like. He knows exactly what we're like. We're going through the book of Daniel at the moment, quite slowly, particularly through chapter 4. It's been a long time in chapter 4 because it zooms in on what humanity is really like. But in this portion, I want to zoom in on what God's really like. What he thinks about us. I want to look at God's heart for sinners from our text today. And it's quite profound because God's heart towards sinners is something that we can hardly even grasp. It's so profound that he's willing to share his goodness with people who don't care a rip about him. He's so willing to share his love and kindness with a world that is really far from him. And yet God delights to share his goodness with the people of this world. So we're going to look at three aspects of this today. We're going to look at the love of God's heart towards sinners from our text. We'll look at the will of God's heart towards sinners and also the grace of God's heart towards sinners as we explore how God views us through our Bible text today. So firstly, the love of God's heart towards sinners. I want you to notice something as we're 
right in the middle of Daniel chapter 4 is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, this is set about 600 BC, so more than two and a half thousand years ago. The great king of Babylon is more of an emperor really, uh, sort of rules uh, uh, an empire over the whole Middle East, a huge area. He's probably the greatest king the world had ever known by that time in history. And uh, God is speaking to him through a dream, would you believe it? And he is terribly alarmed by that dream. But he knows someone in his kingdom who hears from God, who is one of God's people. Though King Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Babylon don't worship this God, they know that this God is different. King Nebuchadnezzar has had interactions with this God in the past and his people. And one standout character, Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has realised can reveal to him what this dream means. What this dream means. But there's something that I want you to notice about Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with Daniel and what Daniel says about it. We see this in verse 19. Daniel says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What do you capture in that? That Daniel is, and I want you to really uh, imbibe Daniel's spirit for a moment. Daniel is a man who was kidnapped as a youth from Jerusalem. He was taken to Babylon to be brainwashed in a totally different pagan culture and forced to worship the gods of that land. He was actually renamed after their gods. That was uh, so Daniel's whole life and identity, his whole person was consumed. He was probably a eunuch because he worked in the king's court. So almost you could imagine that he could be filled with hatred because this king Nebuchadnezzar had sacked Jerusalem, had taken him and his friends and transplanted them into Babylon in order to not just destroy their own city but their very identity who they are as God's people. Everything seemed against them. And yet here we see that Daniel loves Nebuchadnezzar. He loves him. He loves him. Why would someone who should be Nebuchadnezzar's enemy love him? Well, actually what we see in Daniel's love for Nebuchadnezzar is a dim reflection a dim reflection of God's love for humanity, of God's love for sinners. Now I just want to pause for a minute and tell you this is a wonderful example for us. It's a wonderful example if you call yourself a Christian person today, that you should love the people whom perhaps you feel like ought be your enemies. Perhaps you feel oppressed in a day and age, and we just had the census come out recently. I don't know if you're a census nerd like me, but I love the census. love finding out what's happening. And what you'll find is that Christianity is in a steep decline, as it seems, across uh, the nation of Australia. And no religion is in a steep incline. It's going up astronomically. Uh, Christianity is no longer the dominant belief in Australia as of 2021. Now, this is probably not news to anyone. We've 
Certainly been experiencing this for the past two or three decades or so, this demise, or so it seems, of Christianity. And so you might be feeling a sense of intense pressure if you're a Christian person from the culture because Christianity feels like and your faith might feel like it's getting squeezed out because no one really cares about what Christians think anymore. And yet, I wonder what the census data would have said in 600 BC when Daniel and his friends and a small portion of Israel were in Babylon amongst people who were godless, who worshipped false gods. And yet they loved them. And yet Daniel loved him. And it is a dim reflection of the great God who loves this world. And so it should be then our heart's attitude to love the people of this land and of our city so that we would not desire that harm would come to them, but that good would come to them. Why can I say that? Because God says in Ezekiel 33:11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. See, God actually loves the people of this world abundantly more than we could imagine. Abundantly more scarily more. A good way to uh, think about this, I don't know if as a kid you've ever um, tried to dam up a small creek, you know, and you've sort of heaped up sticks and twigs, you've tried to dam up this creek, and the creek, uh, and sort of the water behind the creek just builds higher and higher, and then, you know, if you've got a few friends with you, you might, you know, go and get shovels, and you think, well, we could dam the creek up if we heap on more and more dirt and rocks and build this giant wall to stop uh, this creek from uh, overflowing its planks. But suddenly, all in a moment, the dam wall breaks and the water bursts forth and then drenches everything before it. And it is almost like God's love is just being dammed up in order that would anyone would turn to him and they will be filled with a flood of his loving power in their lives. I remember when in, uh, oh, gee, when was it? 2006. 2006, I was backpacking through China uh, as a teenager and uh, we went to a place called Leaping Tiger Gorge. Leaping Tiger Gorge is... Uh, well known because it's one of the deepest gorges in the world. It has mountains on either side that are above sort of 3,000 metres or so and it goes right down deep into the middle, this really uh, amazing and beautiful place, this great crevice in there. And that's actually, it's um, through, there's a mighty river that flows through it, a mighty torrent of water, and that's uh, this river eventually was dammed up by the Chinese government to produce a great amount of power uh, called the Three Gorges Dam Project. It was one of the largest uh, hydroelectric dam projects in the world. And one of the reasons for that is because this great rush of water, this great force behind it, is enormously powerful, enough to uh, power huge swathes of the country. And God's love is like that. It is enormously powerful, but it is not something that he 
just wants to deal out and a drop here and a drop there. It is like a dam waiting to burst forth upon anyone that would turn to him. Because God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And so Daniel's love for Nebuchadnezzar reflects God's love for sinners. Think about this. The the Christian message is really summarised in that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the New Testament tells us. That God sent his only son into a world of people who despised and killed him. I mean, at the the end of Jesus' sort of 33 years of ministry, it's not a great way to start a religion, it would seem, uh, that Jesus is despised by most, abandoned by his closest followers and hung on a cross to die. And yet him doing that was the greatest act of love that humanity has ever seen. Because God was stepping into our world and taking the penalty for our sin on that cross. It's an enormous act of love. So I just want to put the, um, my finger on a pressure point in your life. Do you find yourself angry or hateful towards people in this world? Now, it might not be particular people. But it might be the idea of particular people or particular philosophies and that kind of thing. Do you find yourself angry and perhaps even hateful because you feel a bit squeezed out? How do you feel this morning when you think about the people of this world? Well, I want you to know how God feels about them. He loves them. He loves them enough to send his only son for them. And when Jesus teaches on this, he says, uh, when he's teaching on prayer in particular, he says, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus says, unless you get how much I've forgiven you, unless you get how much my love has been poured out for you, you're never going to love the people of this world and be willing to forgive them. Power of God's heart towards sinners is that it can get into your own heart towards sinners. But it needs to dawn on you that you are yourself one of these sinners too. So that is the love of God's heart towards sinners as we're exploring God's heart from this text. I want to now look at the will of God's heart towards sinners. And we really uh, pick this up in verse 26. That's what it says. As, as the, um, the explanation or the interpretation of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is sort of brought to a culmination. King Nebuchadnezzar is this great tree, which we see in the, in the dream. It's going to be cut down. He's, the greatest king is going to be humbled to become the lowest. He's going to go from the palace to the field. He's even going to be humbled in terms of his mind. He's going to lose his marbles, is the technical term. He's going to lose his marbles for a season. For seven years, it seems, and uh, be utterly humbled. But why is God doing this? Why is God doing this to him? Verse 26, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed from the time that you know that heaven rules. When, after you've been humbled forcibly, 
when God has humbled you through your circumstances, even your mental health crises, even you having a full-on breakdown, when your heart is humbled toward God, not Him humbling you, but you humble towards Him, then He will restore you. That's what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar. He's got to have a realisation of who He is and who God is. When you know that heaven rules, then your kingdom will be restored to you. So God is planning. This is incredible. God is planning to restore King Nebuchadnezzar. But the barrier to that is Nebuchadnezzar being humbled before God in his heart. Not just physically, not just mentally, but from the very essence of his being. That is the gap because God knows that pride is absolutely deadly. Pride's deadlier than cancer. Because pride is the very thing that will keep you away from God. Pride is the thing that says, you know, I'll do it my way. Pride is the thing that says, I'll live my life the way I want to do it. And I don't really care what the Bible says. I don't really care what anyone says. And our culture will encourage you so. Discover who you are. Be the best you. Live your dreams. You can imagine these things as posters that you might put up on your wall, you know, those sayings uh, that you might get, those inspirational sayings. They're all designed that you would be filled with awe for yourself and your achievements, not for God. And yet God knows that that is absolutely deadly to you. There's nothing like pride to keep you away from God. Nothing like it. And it's deceptive like anything. It's deceptive because you won't even know. Pride has this trick that it works in our mind. We think everything's good. Nebuchadnezzar tells us earlier in the chapter, he was at ease and prospering in his palace. His life was great. He's the greatest king the world had ever seen. He's rich like none of us can possibly imagine. He has everyone bowing the knee to him as king. He feels like he is God. And yet God's, the dream that God sends him alarms him because it's all about to come crashing down. Pride is utterly deceptive for us, but God's will towards sinners is that we would be humble before him because he knows how deadly it is. Uh, there's a philosopher called Jean-Paul Sartre, and in uh, a book he wrote called Being and Nothingness, what a title of a book, Being and Nothingness. That's what you get from these philosophers. He describes a man sitting on a park bench. I think he's describing himself. Sitting on this park bench at ease, happy. He often would sit in a, on a park bench in France, just enjoying the world, enjoying the park around him. You know, the, the butterflies flying around in spring. You can imagine the bees buzzing, beautiful uh, warm sunlight and a cool spring morning. But suddenly, he spots someone looking at him. In the distance, he spots someone looking at him and he tries to ignore it initially, tries to shake it off, but he can't. And so his mind 
starts to wonder, why is this person looking at me? Do they know something? What are they going to do to me? Am I going to be exposed? And his mind continues to grow in alarm because someone is looking at him. They've interrupted his ease. And then all of a sudden he realises it was just a mannequin. Someone had just put up a mannequin in the park and it wasn't a person after all. And so he returns to his ease and comfort. But isn't it interesting how in a moment of almost lucidity, we can realise if we just think a little bit introspectively about ourselves, that all is not well if someone was to really know us. That if someone really knew what goes on in your mind and what you think about and what you want from life, you might become terrified like Sartre was becoming. And yet, all, and if that moment of lucidity goes, you just go back to being comfortable in life. Well, I tell you that God wants to interrupt, and this has been a running theme of the book of Daniel, God wants to interrupt our ease and comfort with our ignorance and pride towards Him and give us a moment of lucidity. But He doesn't just want to stop there. He doesn't want to stop there, but He wants to reveal His goodness and grace into our lives because God's motivator is not just that he wants to dominate over us as the king of all the universe, but that he wants to bring his life into us and change us from the inside out through a love relationship. There is no religion, there is no belief system in the world that comes even close to that. Every other religion and belief system is you working your way up to God through good works, through effort, through being better than somebody else. Every other belief system has you separating yourself from the world in order to be better, in order to escape suffering, in order to come back in another life as a better person, to work your way up the rungs. But God is always some distant force that you have to please. Whereas Christianity tells us that God is not distant but near. Christianity tells us that God is so near that He came to earth and put on flesh Himself, not just to show us how we ought to live, but to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died because of our sins. More than that, He wants to come and inhabit your heart Himself. That is his goal. That is his will towards sinners to come and dwell amongst his own people, ransomed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his goal and object. He is a great and glorious God, but gee, he loves his people. Gee, he loves them. Gee, he has a great will towards them. Once you capture the essence of God's heart, it will start to change you. It will start to move you to be a person who is filled with awe for him and love for him and love for the world around you. In the book, uh, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, uh, there's an interesting character, a young girl, her name is Jill. Now, Jill is about to embark on a glorious adventure uh, for working for um, 
working for one of her friends to be freed. But before she goes on this adventure, Jill finds herself extremely thirsty. And she spots this stream in this uh, land called Narnia, which she's soon to discover. She spots a stream, but as she spots the stream to quench her thirst, she sees a lion standing between her and the stream. And this is what, isn't this what it says. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink, she heard. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realised that it was the very lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realised that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Now this story illustrates a powerful truth for us this morning, that God is utterly fearsome and terrible if you do not know his heart. If you come to a realisation that he is sovereign, as we've sung many times this morning, that he is God of all the universe, that he put everything to, into its place, and that he is a mighty God who invented you personally, who cares utterly about who you are, this mighty God, and you don't care about him, it should instill fear into your heart. It should. And yet it seems in this image that we're given here that there's this fresh water on the other side of this great lion figure. A fearsome lion who seems to willing to deal out justice in the world freely. And yet there's this stream of life-giving water on the other side that Jill will die unless she gets it. Now the truth this is illustrating is this. 
God is fearsome, awesome and mighty. And if we come to him and through him, he will give us this life-giving water. And he will refresh us in its goodness and power. But one thing that will keep us away from him is the wrong kind of fear of him. A fear that keeps you away. A fear that says, well, this God can't be good. This God is, you know, allows suffering in the world, so he can't be good. This God doesn't let me do what I want, so he can't be good. This God has kept good things away from me in my life, and so he can't be good. And that can produce a lot of hurt in our hearts, can it not? And yet, when you realise that the motivator of God for you to come to him is that he was willing to give all of his goodness for you, that a lion became a lamb that was slain, that a lion, a great fearsome lion, the lion of Judah, God himself, who will consume this whole world and universe, He can speak it into existence and he can speak it into nothingness. Became a lamb that was slain in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and that he did that out of love. What does that motivate the heart to do? To come because this awesome God humbled himself for you and I. Because this awesome God loves you and I and his will is that we would come and drink. And so this needs to be equally true if you're not a Christian person or a religious person here this morning. Because your invitation is to come and drink because the living God, the mighty God, the creator God laid his life down for you and says, come and drink. If you're thirsty, come. Receive his goodness into your life. Be forgiven of your sins. Be cleansed of the things that fill your conscience in a lucid moment. And yet if you are a Christian person, if you are a believing religious person here, you need it too. Because often we are clouded by the thinking of this world and our own minds which forgets the very nature of God. And so we forget to drink. It's like the pool is there, but we're in fear to go down and drink and be filled with his goodness. The very thing that empowered people like Daniel to love their neighbour as themselves, as Jesus taught us, is because they knew the God who was willing to do it and who did. And so the very thing, same thing is true for you and I. If you, wanna, if you really want to live the Christian life, you need to come and drink too. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. Otherwise, you may well die of thirst itself. Okay, so in looking at God's heart towards sinners, we've looked at the love of God's heart towards sinners. We've looked at the will of God's heart towards sinners. I want to finish our time this morning by looking at the grace of God's heart towards sinners. First aspect of this is that restoration is possible. Remember, God, through Daniel, says to Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you when you repent, when you are humbled. God's desire is to do a work in our lives. We catch uh, 
this same idea in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is actually warning this great king of his pride because he loves him and because he wants good to come into his life, though he doesn't deserve it. The essence of grace is it's the undeserving or unmerited favour of God. It's what God is willing to give to us of himself that we do not deserve one bit. And that is God's heart towards Nebuchadnezzar, and that is God's heart towards us. It is a heart of grace. God desires that we would not be destroyed by our sin, our pride. I want you to imagine this for a moment. And I think, again, C.S. Lewis um, talks about this in his book, The Great Divorce, I think. He says, hell is really self-chosen by every person. Because hell is just God giving us the desires of our heart. If we, it's, it's the essence of free will. If you say, I want to live my own life, I don't want anything to do with God, then when eternity comes, God will give you that. And yet God's grace is saying, though you deserve to have the life that you want apart from him, when you pass over a thing called death into eternity, though you deserve that, God is willing to interrupt your life. He's willing to interrupt the entire course of humanity by sending himself and coming into our lives and saying, no, that way will destroy you. Come to me and drink. Be restored by a God who can change your heart. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, told a very short story about a, a father who was an atheist, a, a convinced atheist, didn't want anything to do with God. In fact, he wanted to pass it on to the next generation. And the father uh, wrote down for his son to, to read out. He said, he wrote down on this piece of paper, God is nowhere and wanted his son to read it out in order that he would uh, pass on his atheist beliefs to the next generation. But his child read out something else. His child read out, God is now here. And the father was struck. And he converted. Because the child spoke the truth. You see, God's grace is present. It's not far off that you might not attain it. It's present in the good news about Jesus the Son. It's a present news that can come in and change a person. It's this motivating force, God's love toward Nebuchadnezzar's like you and I, that brings this application for us in verse 27. Break off your sins. Break off your sins. The only way to break off your sins is that you will be humbled by a mighty God. Break off your sins. Those things that you do, that attitude that you have, that prideful ambition that rules your heart that really you know that you're better than other people. 
God wants you to break off your sins. God wants you to break off the sin of self-pity, that you deserve better. That everything in your life that everyone has done to you, you deserve much better than that. God wants you to break off your sins of pride because self-pity leads you away from God. In order to break off your sins, you need to come to a mighty God full of grace because you deserve nothing from him and he will give himself arms wide open fully to you. I want to finish by reading out a letter from John Newton, the famous hymn writer. Uh, He wrote a letter to a man, a young man, I believe, struggling with sin. And this is the letter that he wrote. It says, I can truly say that I bear you upon my heart and in my prayers. I have rejoiced to see the beginning of a good and gracious work in you. And I have confidence in the Lord Jesus that he will carry it on and complete it. And that you will be amongst the number of those who shall sing redeeming love to eternity. Therefore, fear none of the things appointed for you to suffer by the way. But gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end. Be not impatient, but wait humbly upon the Lord. You have one hard lesson to learn, that is the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but it is needful that you should know more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. I hope what you find in yourself by daily experience will humble you, but not discourage you. Humble you it should, and I believe it does. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as hope that, poor and needing as you are, the Lord thinketh of you? But let not you feel discouraged. For if our our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate, and if he casts none out that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit, and these evils are not removed in a day. Wait on the Lord, and he will enable you to see more and more of the power and grace of our high priest. The more you know him, the better you will trust him. The more you trust him, the better you will love him. The more you love him, the better you will serve him. This is God's way. You are not called to buy, but to beg. Not to be strong in yourself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He is teaching you these things, and I trust he will teach you to the end. Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly but surely. Many suns, showers, and frosts pass upon it before it it comes to perfection. And in winter, when it seems dead, it is gathering strength at the root. Be humble, watchful, and diligent in the means, and endeavor to look through all and fix your eye upon Jesus, and all shall be well. I commend you to the care of the Good Shepherd and remain for his sake. Yours, John Newton, March 18, 1767. And we're about to sing the words that John Newton penned, that his mercies are more than our sins. Let me pray.